Hi, and welcome to episode seven of Once Upon a Nightmare. I am your host, Lorraine, and I'm here to discuss the horrors of the world, be it fictional or real. This week, we are going real. For True Crime Tuesday, I'm going to discuss one of the worst serial killers out there, in my opinion. This guy didn't care. Kids, adults, animals. No one was safe from the serial killer that was Arthur Shawcross. a little side note as mentioned there are kids involved and it can be quite graphic i don't go too full into it but i say enough so maybe keep away from young ears and when discussing the kids stuff i'll I'll let you know just in case you want to skip forward i have been known to do that myself on occasion i found out about this guy a few years ago and was reading about him and to be honest i had to stop i just really struggle with this guy but i'm facing him for this episode And just if you want to check out any of the sources, they will be in my show notes. So who was Arthur Shawcross? Arthur Shawcross was also known as the Genesee River Killer, the Monster of the Rivers and the Rochester Strangler. He was a serial killer who murdered 13 people, two of whom were children. Shawcross was born Arthur John Shawcross on June 6, 1945 to parents Elizabeth and Arthur Roy Shawcross. He was born in Kittery, Maine, but he soon moved to Watertown. Watertown was a small town near Lake Ontario in New York State. His childhood was met with many issues. He didn't really fit in with the other kids, and he even talked in a baby talk kind of way to try and get their attention. He wet the bed and would also run away from home. And as a child, he was also known to torture animals, and apparently he partook in some bestiality. His grades at school weren't too bad, but he was given the nickname as Oddie. And at school, he never really had any friends and he was made fun of. He would then in turn bully younger kids, including his younger brother. And this was kind of how he took his frustrations out. As time went by, he started to withdraw even more and then his grades began to suffer. Also, he didn't really want to be at home, so he would spend a lot of time with his grandmother, withdrawing from basically everyone apart from her. I've read various versions of how his child actually went from a sexual experience standpoint. Shawcross took a keen interest in sex with heavy masturbating by the age of eight. He claimed to have been molested by an aunt when he was nine. He also claims in a documentary interview with a serial killer that his mother performed oral sex on him as a child, which she, of course, vehemently denies. He claims he also had his first homosexual encounter at 11 and then after that he moved on to the animals. Not only do his parents protest he had a normal childhood, his siblings do as well. He had three younger siblings, Jean, Donna and James. They were all what one would call normal. Um, He resented Donna and James but he had a soft spot for Jean. He's even spoken about the inappropriate feelings he had towards his sister and how he had fantasies of being with her. Some reports have stated he has said he actually was with her while others say he just fantasized about it. Not only does he claim to have had a sexual experience with his sister, but he also claims quite a few more. So as discussed, he said his first sexual experience was with an aunt and her name was Tina at the age of nine. He also stated that he had oral sex with a cousin. Also, there was a young girl he claimed to have oral sex with and was caught by her older brother 
And rather than the brother going to tell the parents, he then asked Shawcross to perform oral sex on him. After all these encounters of having oral sex, it made his appetite grow. But when it came to actual penetration, he was actually unable to hold an erection. He blames his inability to perform on an encounter experienced as a young boy, another one. This encounter would forever change his view about sex and what it would take to gain any sort of pleasure from it. Apparently he was picked up by a grown man in a car. This man had a knife that he put to his throat and the man performed fellatio on Arthur. But due to the pressure and the fear of the knife being on his throat, Arthur struggled to finish and this engaged the, uh, enraged the man. And as a result, the man then sodomized Arthur and simply dropped him home afterwards. And the encounter is where he feels he needed pain to gain any sort of sexual satisfaction. Now, the issue with all these claims is if you look into the various sources regarding Arthur Shawcross and actually listen to him in interviews, he's not consistent. He does tend to lie. So apart from the actual proven murders, it's hard to know if everything else he mentions is actually true. Due to Shawcross having no friends, he would make up his own. He had two imaginary friends a boy named Paul and a young blonde girl who didn't have a name. Over a long period of time, he would talk in baby talk to them. But his teachers and fellow pupils, they just thought that he was talking to himself. And Shawcross said, I had to have these friends because I wanted to have someone to play with and no one else would play with me. Now, everything you've heard so far about him, you if all of that was true, you would feel very sorry for him. No one would like to think of a child being alone, having all these intrusive thoughts thoughts obviously nobody wants to think of a child experiencing all these sexual encounters at such a young such a young age also it must have been very confusing for him to think that your siblings were so normal but what was wrong with you plus you know if all these sexual encounters are in fact true then he didn't really have the best start to life but the more and more i look into him i realize that with most serial killers you can't believe a lot of things that comes out of their mouths Shawcross really does have an active imagination, as you will see as this progresses. Once he left school and began working, he basically just moved from job to job, um, committing small crimes, getting caught. But he did eventually settle down and he did get married. He got married four times, I might add. His first wife was Sarah and he married her in September of 1964. They did have a son in October of 1965, but they soon divorced when he got in trouble with the law yet again. And when they did divorce, part of the agreement was that he would cut all ties with his son, which he did. So there is a son out there somewhere. He did go on to marry again to a Linda Neary, which was also short-lived due to his violent outbursts. The second marriage was followed after he was drafted into the army in April of 1967. He was placed in Vietnam. In 1968, Shawcross returned and was soon convicted for an arson attack and spent two years in jail. After his release, he returned to Watertown in 1971. And in 1972, on April the 7th, he would claim his first confirmed victim. And that would be a young boy named Jack Blake one of the two children he brutally murdered and attacked. Not long after the murder, Shawcross married his third wife, Penny Sherbino. She was pregnant with his child. After the death of Jack Blake, Shawcross was in trouble with the police yet again after he was caught shoving grass cuttings down the shirt and shorts of a six-year-old boy while spanking him. He received a $10 fine and basically a slap on the wrist. 
When watching Shawcross in an interview on the Netflix uh, show Interview with a Serial Killer, it's very clear that he does not like to discuss these two murders. Whenever these two murders are discussed or pushed, the interviewer just really tries to get it out of him and he literally just says, I'm not going there and if you keep this up, I'm leaving. And due to what he did to them, you can tell why. And I'm going to discuss that now in a bit more detail. So you're welcome to skip ahead. In September of 1972, eight-year-old Karen Hill was reported missing and feared drowned. They started looking on the banks of the Black River. She was found by the police on the bank, buried under some stones with her feet sticking out. She had been raped and murdered. The police instantly knew she was dead by the fact that the rocks were up, covering her upper torso, and she was cold. And it's actually quite sad watching the policeman describe this. This happened in 1972 and this documentary is in 2008 and he just looks like he's reliving it all over again and probably felt the distress back then and that he is feeling now. Joe Rich, a news anchor, he discusses how these were tough policemen but they were really thrown by this murder because when they found the little girl, not only had she been raped and murdered and obviously she was dead, she also had dirt and mud that had been shoved into her mouth to keep her quiet and this is something that he would later do to other victims. After finding the little girl dogs were brought in to pick up on the killer's scent and this led them straight to Arthur Shawcross. He was 27 at the time and married to his third wife Penny Sherino. Uh, he had a record for petty crime and a history of a troubled childhood. He was just out of the military and his defense attorney Paul Dardoff, sorry if I've said that wrong, discusses how he would get quite agitated and he was quite scary now this uh, attorney would talk about when he would go and see um, anyone he was representing he would get into the cell with them and just talk to them he wouldn't do that with Shawcross he said that it was just he was just too terrifying and he wouldn't be left alone in a room with him Shawcross then made some sort of a half-ass attempt at a confession you know kind of like I may have done this but with the case of Jack Black they got Shawcross to actually admit it by making it part of a plea bargain for the death of Karen Hill so Shawcross then took the police to the body of Jack who had been placed by these railway tracks he was naked he appeared he'd have been raped and been strangled to death Jack actually knew Shawcross and had gone fishing with him willingly, despite the pleas from his mother to actually stay away from him because she had this bad vibe. But unfortunately, the little boy didn't listen and he actually went with him, probably thinking it was okay because he knew him. So because Shawcross spoke up and admitted, you know, to what he did, he didn't actually face a charge for the death of Jack Blake. And he also got a reduced charge for Karen Hill. And seriously, what the fuck is wrong with the justice system? And it gets worse. He pled guilty to manslaughter, manslaughter, um, and got 25 years. The public, of course, were outraged. But what what's the bloody point? Like, he only served 14 and a half years and was released on parole. While in prison, he didn't have the best time, as you can probably imagine. If you rape and murder a child, you are not exactly what one would call popular. And he received a lot of abuse and beatings for his crime. Oh, no. Where he was, he was in New York's Greenhaven Correctional Facility. And this was a place that apparently housed millions, not millions, <laughs> lots of the most evil criminals. Um, but he was that bad that he actually had to be segregated away from the other ones as it was not safe for him to be near them. Now, this next bit is why I kind of believe that everything he says he's full of shit the kind of the, the kind of general consensus was of him that he didn't know what he was doing because of all the abuse now there's conflicting reports which i will discuss later about the state of mind of arthur shawcross and why i think that a lot of that is bullshit you will hear now basically 
Shawcross heard that to get an early release, like a lot of prisoners, there's a little game they can play. You could suck up to the welfare officers, the shrinks, the church, and basically behave yourself. They even went so far as to call him a reformed man. He knew what to say, he knew how to act, he knew what to do. He even managed to get a job as a counsellor in the mental health unit of the prison. His game paid off and he walked free. Now, if you have serious mental health issues like they claim for him and all these problems, you would not have the ability to do that because you wouldn't think what you did was actually wrong. Now, not all shared the opinions of those that let him go, but some say he was granted early release, which this part I can believe was due to cutting costs. It was political. So the mentally ill Shawcross, who had no idea what he was doing, managed to convince three people he was a reformed man. And thanks to people worrying about lining their pockets with money, 11 more women had to die and a big fuck you was given to the parents of Karen and Jack. Oh, and for his troubles, he got to walk out of prison and into the arms of a pen pal, Rose Marie Wally. Who are these women that can overlook something like that? But she did. And plus, he was minging. If you've ever seen a picture of this guy, he's fucking disgusting. Who wants to look at that? So he got out of prison. They tried various places to live, but they got run from those prisons once they found out who he was. So they then settled in Rochester and shucker, he started killing again. So after killing the two children, he then moved on to sex workers. He would roam the streets looking for women and when it didn't go his way, well, he would brutally murder them. It's rather common for the murder of a sex worker to not gain much traction. People don't really care. People don't really view them as they would say, like a mother of four who lives at home, has a job, works at a school. Um, I personally don't share that opinion. I sincerely believe that all deserve the same treatment. And I think it's despicable how people place so little on these women in this particular profession. Luckily, though, for these girls, the Rochester police felt that they did deserve the attention of everyone else. One investigator does refer to the fact that basically no matter who they are, where they found, they are all human, which is true. And if only all law enforcement felt this way. But there was very little public reaction when the sex workers were found. So, as mentioned, it was 11 women he killed. And who were all these women that died in quite a very small space of time? Our first was a Dorothy Blackburn. She was the first girl to meet her fate at the hands of Shawcross. She was only 27 and a mother of three, one of whom was only six months old. She was last seen alive on Tuesday, March 15th, 1988, and her body was located floating face down in the Salmon Creek by laborers clearing debris. At first they thought she was a mannequin, but soon it became apparent it was the body of a young woman. An autopsy revealed she had died through strangulation. She was also bitten several times in her private area. The reason for her death was during the sexual encounter with Shawcross, he got angry at her as she laughed at him because he had performance issues and then he slapped her in the head and she bit his penis. He then murdered her and simply dumped her body, threw her clothes away and cleaned the blood from his car and drove home. Second victim was Anne-Marie Stephan. She was only 27 too and unfortunately had taken to sex work to fund a drug habit. This happened after her sister Um, died her paralyzed sister died she was last seen on july 9th shawcross has met her had oral sex with her and then strangled her and then dumped her body and threw it over the edge of a of the genesee river gorge a man named hector maldonado was collecting uh, returnable bottles on september the 11th 1988 and he found her body in the semi-fetal position 
He had also removed her eyes and yanked hair from her skull on this particular victim. His next one was a little different though because she actually worked for Shawcross so he really knew her. That was Dorothy Keller. She was an alcoholic and a drifter and on Friday, July 29th, 1989, he lied about taking her fishing. He then lured her to Seth Green Island where they had sex and afterwards Shawcross then accused her of stealing from him. She protested and threatened to tell his partner of the affair between the two of them and he beat her to death with a piece of wood. So with this one, he kind of changed his MO a bit as he then cut off her head. And when talking about this, he he simply says he threw it in the river and this bit is disgusting. As he walked away, it popped up and smiled at him. Yes, of course it did. Like, seriously, what the fuck? Dorothy was found in the fetal position on Saturday, October the 21st by some fishermen. She was described as a bag of bones in clothes. Next, we have 25-year-old Patricia Ives, also known as Crazy Patty. Patricia had unfortunately not had the best life. She was dependent on drugs She had her little boy put into foster care and she kind of became a shell of her former self. It was once said that she resembled Hollywood actress Julia Roberts. But Patricia was last seen alive on September 29th, 1989, going off with a white male. Patricia did have a pimp and a boyfriend and they both reported her missing quite quickly. But unfortunately, her body was found by some children looking for a baseball on Friday, October 27th, a foot was sticking out from under some cardboard and Shawcross said he killed her as she went through his wallet. He also said that there were children nearby during this act. The sad thing is, he said that when he was killing her, he simply put his hand over her mouth. He blocked her nose and she just let it happen. She didn't struggle, she didn't fight and she didn't scream. She just apparently let him kill her. His next victim was June Scott. She was the youngest of eight children and had a slight learning disability. She slept rough and heard voices in her head. June was 30, but she wasn't a sex worker or had any dependency issues. She was just a woman that was kind of lost in her own head. Again, she was a woman that Shawcross knew. He knew her situation and he preyed on that. She even at one point, she went to his house for dinner. Again, he suggested going fishing with him. So on Monday, 23rd of October, off they went on their fishing uh, trip. Shawcross did try to have sex with her, but June refused his offer and this made him mad. So unable to deal with the rejection, he strangled her. He removed her clothes and he threw them into the river. He then returned to the body two days later and cut her open. And well, he did stuff with her, it wasn't pretty. And then some poor bastard, a Mark Setzel, he found her on Thursday, November 23rd under a piece of frozen carpet. And due to the position of the body, there is a possibility they think that necrophilia did occur. And if that wasn't enough, after butchering her the way he did, he then cut off her private parts and ate them. And when asked why she wasn't dumped like the others, he responded, well, I kind of liked her. What a fucking stupid thing to say. Next, we have Maria Welsh. Maria was only 22 and had a five-month-old son. She was last seen November 5th, 1989. Maria had a boyfriend who reported her missing the next day, but unfortunately, Maria was not found until after Shawcross was arrested. Shawcross asked Maria, was she on her period? To which she said no, but it soon became apparent that she was as he found a cotex. Shawcross asked for his money back, but she told him, and I quote, go fuck himself. This angered Shawcross, so he strangled her until she passed out and then he removed, okay, it gets a bit gross here. He removed the cortex and placed a bar towel inside her. Maria came to and asked him what he was doing, but he had not only placed this towel inside her, he'd also tied her up 
and she of course was asking to be released but Shawcross simply pulled out the towel and felt it was clean enough to have sex. He had sex with her, then he murdered her. He said, which I think is bullshit, is that Maria then turned to him and said, I love you. He then kissed her and killed her. <sighs> Jesus. Frances Franny Brown, his next victim, she was very young. She was only 22 and also had a substance abuse problem. She too had a young child and disappeared not long after Maria. She went missing November 11th, 1989. She was found by a fisherman on November 15th and Shawcross explains that he and Franny got basically carried away during the 69 position and he suffocated her. When she was gone, he didn't stop doing what he was doing. And when he was finished, he simply rolled her over a cliff. Kimberly Logan, on the other hand, she was a bit different. As Shawcross, he kind of keeps denying this murder, but after being interviewed by the police, they were happy that it was him and they closed the case. Kimberly was a mute and she was also special needs. So maybe it was the guilt of killing someone who had these disabilities that he refused to admit to. Kimberly went missing on November 15th and she was found later that day by a man, Jimmy, Jimmy James, and he found her by literally standing on her naked body and bruised body. And Shawcross had forced leaves and other matter into her mouth and up her nose. Next one was beauty queen Elizabeth Gibson. Now Elizabeth married the same day she left school, but unfortunately her life didn't end up the way she wanted. She turned to cocaine. She ended up in sex work. She went missing on November 25th and was found two days later. Shawcross again, the reason for killing her was that she was trying to steal his money. She did put up a fight when he started to attack her, but apparently with Elizabeth, he did try to revive her and also commented that he wept a little and then he simply dumped her body in the woods and drove away we've got three left the next one well this is really bad i think anyway because he knew her that well that they exchanged christmas gifts and a few days before she went missing shawcross actually carried a joint of venison to her home and even discussed the murders that were taking place in rochester and this was a 32 year old darlene trippy darlene was also a sex worker but still very much close to her family um she was last seen alive by her sister on Friday, December 15th, 1989. This was another case of Shawcross getting mag and choking her because she told him he was hopeless and stopped a sexual act. And he had to bring the police to the body of Darlene once he was apprehended. His penultimate victim was 34-year-old June Cicero. Now, unfortunately for June, she too had a bad drug ha habit. And she was well known, though, as a sex worker, as she'd been doing it for for 16 years and she was like a mother figure to all the younger girls and not only was she well known she also was classed as the meanest sex worker on the streets but she was respected june went missing december 17th 1989 and wasn't spotted until january 3rd 1990 and that was by a police helicopter that was hovering over and they saw her frozen body in the ice under a bridge june had died for simply calling shawcross a wimp he hit her and strangled her and Shawcross said he only used one hand to do this, his left hand. He simply just threw her out of the car and over a bridge. It is so frustrating how he talks about June and the others, like discarded, just like a piece of rubbish. He, they're nothing to him. And he just closed the door and kept going. But with June, she was actually quite well known to the police and they even warned her about the dangers of the serial killer hunting sex workers. And within minutes, apparently, of having this conversation with the police, she was never seen alive again because she got into Shawcross's car. His last victim was Felicia Stevens. 
who met him on Thursday, December 28th, 1989, and a deer hunter found her body on December 31st. Apparently, she was wearing only a fur coat and boots as she was trying to get away from her pimp at the time. Now, this is quite a bizarre story. Apparently, Felicia stuck her head in Shawcross's car and he got such a fright that he drove off with her hanging in the window, dragging her for a few blocks. And after he finally stopped, she simply just got in his car and asked for sex. That sounds a bit random, doesn't it? His response was, of course, to take her to the river and strangle her standard. I think one thing with these murders show that Shawcross really didn't need much of a reason to murder these women. He had zero self-control over his emotions. Even in an interview which is on Netflix, uh, the interview with the serial killer one, he states uh, that to him his cleaner Dorothy deserved what she got because he thought she was stealing from him. So that was his justification. And the interviewer even says to him, do you not think that was kind of a bit of an overreaction? And he's like, well not to me. And then the interview tries to get him, you know, do you remember killing these girls? But he just doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to go into detail. He doesn't, everything he's done, he doesn't want to be seen as the bad guy. All the deaths, while varied, were also quite similar. Most of the sex workers were strangled or beaten, clothes removed or partially removed, some dumped close to water, some placed neatly next to them. Plus he had a habit of putting vegetation in certain body parts. Some had been eaten by animals while others were cannibalized by Shawcross. And when discussing eating parts of his victims, he he discusses it like having raw meat. He liked raw meat, but he talks as though he just sat down to eat a very raw piece of steak. As I mentioned, the police in the Rochester area did actually give a shit about these women and the fact that they were sex workers didn't lower their worth, which is, as I said, quite rare. And I have seen many cases where they simply don't give a fuck about them because of their profession as a sex worker. There have been times where that mentality, well, it's part of the job. It's part of the risk. No, women and men should be able to be sex workers, do what they need to do and leave. So the police really wanted this guy caught and they really did try. There was a round the clock surveillance where the victims were last seen alive. And while some of the murders had few differences, they knew they were dealing with the same guy. And knowing they had a serial killer, um, with these women they didn't try and handle it themselves like you know you get that kind of dick measuring mentality they actually did call in the FBI for assistance so to me that really does show how much they wanted um, help with this and there was a little bit of a Kemper vibe to this in the sense that you know Kemper became friends with the police he got to find out what it was and while Shawcross didn't necessarily become friends with them he spent a lot of time in Dunkin Donuts where they would be and they would discuss the case quite loudly and he could hear everything and then even at one point he said he was sat on a step or something and a policeman was sat with him and just started telling him all about the murders which I just feels a bit did that happen I don't know I, I believe the Duncan Donuts bit Duncan Donuts bit but I don't believe the other bit when the police were searching the area Shawcross returned to a bridge but he said he was completely unaware that June was actually under the bridge. The police found his behaviour a little odd and they pulled him in for questioning and then that's when everything began to unravel. They found about the murders of the two children in Watertown. There were many girls missing and they gave him cards with pictures of the women on them and he picked out the women he murdered and he explained to the interviewer you know, he's like, why did you confess? And he was like, well, I just got tired. They were questioning me for 14 to 16 hours. Like the poor wee thing needed a break. Plus they found a certain piece of jewelry that his uh, then girlfriend, Clara Neal, was wearing that actually belonged to one of the victims, June Cicero. 
and they threatened to also implicate Clara, but he admitted that he worked alone when murdering the women. He didn't want her being dragged into this, you know, because he's such a fucking caring person. And Clara, the ever-blushing bride, did actually end up marrying Shawcross on July 10th, 1997. Clara, obviously living in Cuckoo land, was willing to stand by his her man no matter what after everything he did and apparently they were eligible for conjugal visits it's actually a thing i don't really know once he had confessed shawcross was of course tried for all the women now we have to move to what state his mind was in was he insane and as you remember back then i said about what he did in prison to get out that would to me not suggest um someone who didn't know what they were doing so Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Pincus, a senior neurologist from Georgetown University, goes on to say that there is something wrong with Shawcross and everyone is aware of this. Well, yes, he is not a normal person. Well, yes. So, of course, a scan was taken and Dr. Pincus has examined many serial killers and their brains to see if there is a consistency with them, you know, and to see if there's something they all have in common and why they do what they do. Arthur fitted this pattern um, with the, the brain scan, the abnormality. And this was why he became a violent serial killer. Dr. Pincus believes that had he not had this abnormality, he would not have become a serial killer. Would a statement like that make you feel bad for a killer, like he couldn't help it? For me, I'm sorry, no. We go on to find out from another examination from a psychologist, it was a Dr. Lewis, that, as mentioned, he was sexually mistreated as a child. Now, there are various people who interfered with Shawcross and the abuse, and along with the brain abnormality, and all this led to for him to do what he did we see a session where he is talking to um, a psychologist under hypnosis and he's kind of talking about his mother is kissing him and squeezing him and he goes on in the interview to say that his mother performed all sex on him and then he ran away at the age of 14 so dr lewis the psychologist and dr pincus the neurologist believe that all this happened to him but his family denied the behavior yet there was no evidence of any sexual abuse and he was asked you know why is your mother denying it? Where's the proof? Now, to be fair, he does make a valid point. If the mother was doing all this and abusing him, she's not going to take him to the doctors and get a record of this because the interviewer was like, there's no record. Well, of course there isn't. But as as I said, serial killers aren't exactly known for their honesty. So Dr. Pincus himself says he would be very shocked if it turned out that Shawcross was actually never abused and had been lying all along. The, the prosecutor obviously believes he, of course, made it all up. And this is where the professional heads clash. Now, I know one is actually a professional in neurology, but how can he prove the sexual abuse? You cannot prove that. It's basically taking his word. Shawcross spent time in the military. And when he was in Vietnam, he lied about his position as a weapons specialist, again, lying. He lied about hunting down the enemy alone, again, lying. He claims to have done all sorts to people in Vietnam killing a woman and cooking her body to get information from a friend. There is no evidence that he ever did any of this stuff. He even goes so far as to say he can't remember anybody's name, not one person's name from the whole 13 months he was there. In fact, though, his commanding officer, a Sergeant Weaver, said that he was actually a supply clerk. There is no documentation out there as to what he did to these women in Vietnam. And I pray it isn't true. There is stuff out there of what he says he did but I'm not going to put it in here because it is absolutely disgusting it's horrific but if you want to go looking for it you knock yourselves out Joel Cross was found guilty of all the murders and found insane and got 250 years 
He goes on to say that he thought one of the sex workers had given him AIDS, so he went back to find all the sex workers, killing as many as he could. Whenever questioned on everything he does, he always comes out with the same thing. Like, when you question him, he's like, you believe what you want to believe. It's up to you. I'm telling you, if you don't like it, that's your problem. He keeps, again, refusing to discuss the children, and the FBI kind of make a valid point here. Killing the children is probably the worst thing you can do, as we all know that. But, of course, there's nothing you can say to justify it. With the sex workers, he could say, they stole from me, they gave me AIDS, they made fun at me, they bit my penis. But with the children, there's nothing you can say. He knows this, and that's why he won't say it. If he wasn't sane, he would have thought that there was nothing wrong with anything he'd done. That's what I believe. I may be wrong. Shawcross knows right from wrong. You can tell by how he talks. He is, of course, you know, he has had issues. But when listening to Dr. Pinkers and Dr. Lewis, it doesn't just sit right. It just They seem so willing to believe that everything he says. And they're going by the information he has befro- uh, provided. They It's all from his account. But to make things even a bit stranger, it turns out that he, in fact, had a daughter who he met in 2000. His daughter, he never actually knew anything about. He had a brief affair with a woman while he was in Hawaii and he fell, and she fell pregnant. And that daughter, Maggie Demin, would contact him 40 years later. Her husband, of course, was a bit reluctant as there were children involved in the murders. But Maggie couldn't let it go. To be fair to her, I kind of get that. I get why you'd be curious and want to know. But the rest of it, I don't. I find it very weird when watching her talk about him. She's like practically giddy. She's got like this sparkle in her eye, like she's almost talking about a guy she's just met, you know, and he's just text her. She said he was very gentle, grandfatherly to her daughter. And when Maggie is mentioned to Shawcross, again, he lights up. He's like, she's cool. And she knows everything he did in detail. And I'm going to be honest when it comes to Maggie. What he did to the kids, she simply just blows it off and says it's between him and his maker. But I'm sorry, you fucking kidding me. You don't say that to anyone. I don't care who they are. I feel she's letting him off the hook so easily. Um, I get wanting to see him and forming a relationship. You're introducing your daughter. You're playing happy families. Some may think this is okay. I personally think it's bullshit. And it's like it's like he's almost being rewarded with this nice life now and she wants all her seven kids to have a relationship with him not all of them obviously know who he did what he did but they're they're gonna find out like you got the internet so i find it very hard also to understand his feelings towards his daughter and family he he, you can tell when he's talking he loves them the interviewer asks a good question here kind of the question that's on everyone else's mind what would you do if your grandkids were raped and murdered his answer is simple it's up to the law And he does explain when he's pushed that he would be devastated. So, of course, you know, that's kind of like, but, you know, you did the same thing. And Shawcross then starts about how he had absolutely no remorse for anything he did. But then he has such affection for his daughter and granddaughter, uh, grandchildren, and even Clara, you know, who he was so worried about. He wouldn't let her be, you know, brought into this. And how can someone care when they're so unbelievably evil? Shawcross ends it all with how he knows there is a bad man in him, how he hides behind a door. Now, he doesn't want to hurt anyone else yet. He has no remorse and he killed two children and 11 women. This serial killer is one that I struggled with. I have from the moment I find out about him and after researching him, I struggle with him even more. I will probably never look at anything he's ever done ever again. And that's not you like me. The interviewer makes one last attempt to discuss the murder children and Shawcross simply ends the interview and leave. 
So Shawcross went on to become a kind of celebrity in the prison. He sees himself as a bit celebrity because everyone knows what he did. He receives many letters from fans while he's in the Sullivan Correctional Facility in New York State, where he died on November 10th, 2008. And that is the story of Arthur Shawcross. I hope is enjoy the right word. Anyway, on to something a lot nicer now, and that will be my podcast recommendation, and that is for Weird Distraction. It's a really interesting podcast and I really enjoy it and I've listened to quite a few episodes. The girls are really easy to listen to. So just listen to this little promo and then go listen, go follow, go subscribe, go do all the things you got to do. Do you often find that you need a distraction from everyday life? Do you like true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories and other weird dark tales? Well, tune in and turn up Weird Distractions Podcast, where we, your hosts, Christy and Alex, bring you a weird distraction to help you get through the work week. Every Sunday morning, you can find our show on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Good Pods, and more. So grab a snack, get comfy, and make sure to lock those doors. Need a distraction? We got you. And I'd like to say... Thanks for listening and don't forget to rate and review me on iTunes and you can also find me on Instagram as Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast, on Twitter and Letterboxd as A Nightmare Pod and you can also email me on onceuponanightmarepod at gmail.com and I will chat to you very soon where next week I will be doing a horror film that I have yet to pick. So yeah, bye. <laughs>